0: Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. With spring in the air and the mighty Legion United top of the league and cruising to automatic promotion, our thoughts naturally turn to Christmas. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's not my best link, but moving on. Today's story is from the Christmas of 2015. It's a shocking tale of deception violence, sexual depravity and sheer bad luck from the home counties. But firstly, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Tara Chasto, Jonathan and Lee Sullivan. Thank you all so much and I hope you enjoy bonus episode 26, which is heading your way this week. Let's set a little context to today's story beginning with the music we were listening to in December 2015, with the exception of Slade and Wizard and the usual Christmas suspects. Holding off the Bieber and Adele to claim the number one slot was the no-doubt-very-worthy Lewisham and Greenwich NHS choir. Bieber himself even said, For one week, it's okay not to be number one. Let's do the right thing and help them win. It's Christmas. You can't argue with the Beaver. Adele with Hello topped the US chart. And in Australia, Adele also topped the album charts where she remained for five weeks. In the news this month, the 21st century finally became a reality when the US Defence Secretary Ash Carter announced that all combat roles in US armed forces would be open to women. About time, but why so long? Amazon's best-selling book of the year was A Girl on a Train by Paula Hawkins. I enjoyed it, did you? And Playboy magazine published its last nude issue featuring Pamela Anderson on the cover. Oh, and Jose Mourinho was sacked as manager of Chelsea again. In true crime news, a husband and wife who plotted terror attacks on the underground and also the Westfield Shopping Centre nicknamed the Silent Bomber Couple. Jailed for a minimum of 27 and 25 years. In December 2015, at 23 years old, Katie Locke had everything going for her. Living with her mum Jennifer and dad Bill in the Essex suburb of Buckhurst Hill, sports mad Katie was a much loved daughter and sister with lots of friends and a real energy and a zest for life. She had recently graduated from Southampton University where she had worked hard but she also found plenty of time to party and to play sport, especially canoeing. Now Katie had managed to secure an excellent first job, teaching history and politics at Cardinal Pole, a Roman Catholic school in Hackney, East London. A sense of Katie can be seen from a section of one of her school reports that she had posted recently on Facebook, jokingly saying that she would use them on her own pupils. One of them read, Although I'd not want to quash her enthusiasm for life, I feel that having to wait for Katie to draw breath before I can start is not the most productive use of time. With a demanding job, a close family, and a wide circle of friends and interests, Katie didn't have too much free time. But like so many of her friends, she did sign up to free dating site Plenty of Fish. If you don't know too much about it, it's owned by Match. And it's one of the biggest online dating sites in the world, with over 150 million registered users in more than 20 countries. And it claims it has more conversations than any other dating app, about 2.5 million every day. Incidentally, were you aware that bristler is a thing? I quote, connecting those with beards to those who want to stroke beards. (laughs) I know, me neither. Anyway, on Plenty of Fish, Katie was approached by someone handsome, bright and very interesting. Carl Landell. 26-year-old Carl lived close to Katie in Waltham Cross in Hertfordshire with his mum and dad. He had a really interesting background, having spent almost a year working for a hotel group in Moscow. Academically, he had progressed well, studying business management at Cardiff University before taking a master's in journalism. He told Katie how he was currently studying at BPP Law School in London and had just registered his own legal firm, Langdall Legal Associates. His LinkedIn profile told how this business operated in 10 different areas of law, including commercial litigation, criminal law, employment law and immigration law. Carl was clearly ambitious and had some really big plans for professional success. And away from work, He seemed to share many of the same ideals and values as Katie, expressed via his blog, Ordinary Decent Human. The content he produced included poetry and humanitarian appeals on important subjects, such as female genital mutilation. He also posted a large number of pictures of himself online, some with celebrities, including Boris Johnson, who at the time was Mayor of London. (laughs) Yeah, celebrity. Maybe that is the wrong description for Boris, but it isn't too easy to find the right word to describe him, I would suggest. Katie and Carl got on well and agreed to progress to meet in person in hipster Shoreditch in East London. No shortage of facial hair in Shoreditch. I bet it's a real hot spot for a Bristler. On December the 23rd, an excited Katie got ready and travelled to meet Carl at the trendy traffic bar. The date went well. Very well. They talked, they laughed, and they drank, even sharing some shots towards the end of the evening. Katie's friends looked out for her, and she texted one of her friends during the evening, Rosie Foster, telling her just how well the date seemed to be going. By 2am, the pair were decidedly tipsy and had decided to take a taxi to the Theobald Park Hotel in Hertfordshire, close to where Carl lived with his parents. But this wasn't some romantic fairy tale. Carl was in such a state in the car that the taxi driver had to stop a number of times so he could throw up by the side of the A10. He wasn't quick enough on a number of occasions and was sick inside the taxi, which meant that when they arrived at the hotel at 3.30am, Katie had to pay the driver not just a £65 fare, but also an extra £80 to pay for his car to be cleaned. Speaking later, the receptionist remembered the couple well. Both were pretty drunk, and whilst Katie paid the £115 bill, Carl just moaned, saying, I shouldn't have had those shots. The receptionist heard from the couple just one more time, about half an hour later, when Katie called asking for toothpaste and brushes to be sent to the room. At 6.25am, A man from an adjacent room noticed that the fire escape was jammed open with a coat hanger. That was unusual, but everything else seemed normal in their room. Carl had put a Do Not Disturb sign on the door, and he checked out at noon. It was Christmas Eve. It's a time when families tend to come together, from far apart, to celebrate Christmas as a family. It's a day for men finishing their shopping at the local garage, and for all members of the family preparing food for the coming days. It was meant to be a special Christmas for Katie and her family, as Jennifer and Bill had planned a reveal on Christmas Day that they booked a surprise family holiday to Disneyland. But with Katie still not home, the atmosphere was, was very tense and unsettled. As the morning crept on, they were becoming increasingly worried about Rosie. It was totally out of character for her, not to let her know if she wasn't coming home and she wasn't answering her mobile. This concern increased when they realised that Katie hadn't been out with her friend Rosie as they'd thought, but had been out on a date. The night before, one of Katie's friends sent Carl a Facebook message checking she got home okay. And at 11.56am on Christmas Eve, one of Katie's pals messaged Craig on Facebook, asking where she was. He replied that he had No idea at all where she was. She'd got a taxi ages ago. He said he had tried to call her but her phone was off and her battery had died. And as the day progressed to the afternoon, Katie was still not answering her phone. Until, at one point, someone did answer her phone to one of Katie's friends, but it wasn't Katie. A man answered, and in what seemed to be a breathless voice, he asked them to repeat their name and then whispered Katie's name with very long, drawn-out breaths before sending the call to the answer phone. Katie's friend was now in a real panic and sure that something awful had happened. She googled the picture of Carl finding his business address, which was registered at his mum and dad's home. The friend told Katie's dad, who drove there straight away to find his beloved daughter. Unsure what to expect, he was greeted by Carl's mum. He told him the most devastating news that any parent can hear. She said that Carl had returned, not himself, from his evening out, adding, I'm a monster. I've killed a girl. Katie's dad couldn't quite believe what he was hearing. As Carl's mum continued that her son had told her, I put her in the ground. I wrapped her up in a quilt. I put her in a trolley. Carl wasn't at the house. He had taken the family dogs for a walk in the Lee Valley. Katie's dad died 999, and the police quickly picked up Carl, who admitted murdering Katie. When he underwent formal questioning at Stevenage Police Station, Langdell, who'd consumed cocaine, diazepam and antidepressants, told detectives that he was a narcissist, who was unable to feel any empathy. Speaking about murdering Katie, Langdell told officers, She didn't even fight. I expected her to hit out for something. Her body was quickly discovered by police, dumped, wrapped in blankets from the hotel, in undergrowth next to a skip in the grounds. As detectives traced exactly what had happened, what they discovered was utterly shocking. It was clear that Katie had been strangled in the early hours of Christmas Eve, at the end of the pair's first date. But Carl Langdell had sex with her corpse, taking photographs on his iPhone before he had wheeled Katie from the hotel in the laundry cart and dumped her in the bushes in the grounds. And then just before he checked out at midday, he contacted a lady called Diana Chertis, who he'd been seeing for a few months, after meeting her on dating site Tinder. Diana had previously spent the night with him at the Theobald Hotel. He confessed that he'd killed someone. He told her they couldn't be together any longer because he'd be in prison for a long time. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, how Diana must have felt her feelings of shock and revulsion and she immediately ended the call and deleted all of his messages and his contact details. After Langdale checked out that day, a hotel cleaner discovered a broken window in his room, all the bedclothes gone and Katie's ringing mobile phone. At his trial at St Albans Crown Court, Langdale pleaded guilty to murdering Katie Locke and sexually assaulting her corpse. But why was he free to murder Katie? The court heard that he'd killed Katie just three weeks after being convicted at Bristol Crown Court of threatening to kill a woman nine months earlier. Of course, this is information he hadn't shared with Katie. On that occasion, he'd been detained under the Mental Health Act at Southmead Hospital, and been given a nine-month jail sentence, suspended for two years after confessing to deeply disturbing fantasies about the younger sister of an ex-girlfriend to a community psychiatric nurse. He told her, I want to cut her throat, take her clothes off to see her naked, and then have sex with her when she's dead. Langdale had told Gemma Gowing, a community psychiatric nurse in Western Supermare, where he lived at the time, that he had violent fantasies and that he wanted to hurt and rape females. He went on to tell Gemma that he was going to call her before, during and after the act as he wanted her to understand the reality of his threats and then asked why he wasn't locked up for saying those things. Benjamin Aina QC defending said that Langdale claimed that Katie had told him she was into BDSM and he put his arm around her throat. He said, He says he doesn't know what came over him and decided to squeeze until he killed her. He accepts he had behaved like a psychopath and had sexual intercourse with her body and took three pictures. But despite the pathological evidence, he insists he did not attack her before he killed her. QC Aina said in a letter Langdell had written, No apology I give and no sentence I receive, not even my death, could make up for what I have mindlessly taken. But his account of it being a sex game that had gone wrong was dismissed by the court. All forensic and circumstantial evidence indicated that Katie had very conservative sexual tastes and was not killed in any sort of sex game. And to use this line of defence, again it just puts Katie's poor family, who sat sobbing throughout the trial, through yet more pain. In victim impact statements, Katie's parents told the court that their daughter, who lived with them in Essex, was a ray of sunshine. Langdale was in tears, as her mum Jennifer said, Nothing could prepare her for meeting a monster. I shall miss her every minute of every day. Her husband looked at Langdale in the dock and told him, On the internet you said you were an ordinary decent person. You are ordinary, but you are not a decent person. Katie was born in January 1992 like a new star. The day she was murdered, that star was extinguished. Katie's loss is huge for me. In hindsight, I did not tell her enough how pretty she was and how much I loved her. Maybe she knew it, but now I feel I probably am at fault for not telling her. Judge Andrew Bright called Langdell a monster and a psychopath as he handed down a minimum sentence of 26 years, doubting he'd ever be released due to how dangerous a threat he posed to women. And after the trial, Katie's family released the following statement. On the 24th of December, we were cruelly robbed of a precious daughter, sister, niece, granddaughter, cousin and auntie. Katie was a beautiful person, both inside and out. Completely irreplaceable, and for us as a family, life will never, ever be the same again. Katie's loss has robbed so many people, the friends who loved her, the workmates who relied upon her, the children she taught and those she would have gone on to teach in what promised to be a successful career. We would like to thank each and every one of the 400 people who attended her funeral to pay tribute to her life. We will never forget Katie. She was a bright, funny, loving young woman. She was also trusting, caring, and always tried to see the best in everyone, which sadly has been her downfall. Unfortunately, there were no signs for Katie to see, and as a family we have suffered daylight robbery. For us as a family to realise that any fantasist or predator can lie and publicly betray themselves as anything their warped personalities would like is shocking. Today's result changes nothing. Katie is never coming home. All we can do is warn other young women to be careful in the hope that no other family ever has to go through the pain and trauma we have suffered. We also hope that authority in the future would undertake the most serious investigations if this murderer is ever considered for release. As in all professional opinions we've heard in the last few months, they all believe he will forever be a danger to the public. Finally, Katie's mum said, I'm grieving for my beautiful daughter, for the happy child she was, for the lively, beautiful, noisy teenager, and for the lovely young adult, and mostly for the woman I'll never know. As usual, in similar circumstances, there was an independent review to see what could have been done differently and to look at lessons learnt. Regular listeners will know I look at these with utter dread, as I just want to see people actually taking responsibility and personal accountability. It really happens, as you know. Okay, deep breath, ready? An independent review commissioned by NHS England found there had been systematic missed opportunities, including a lack of information regarding Langdall's previous care. However, it concluded, there was no way for staff from any agency to determine whether Langdall was one of the 97% of people who only make threats, or one of the 3% who carry threats through. We conclude, therefore, that the tragic death of Katie Locke could not have been predicted with a degree of certainty that would have made it possible to prevent. The Hertfordshire Trust Executive Director of Quality and Medical Leadership Dr. Asif Zia, resigned due to the failures. Oh no, my mistake. Of course he didn't. What are you thinking? As if. Instead, he said, there are a number of areas where the Trust can and will learn lessons from this terrible incident and minimise the possibility of this ever happening again. So that's alright then. Lander was back in the news in March 2017. In May, whilst on remand in HMP Bedford, he attacked prison officer Dean Adamson when the officer would not open a cell door. At Lytton Crown Court, he was sentenced to a further three years. The prison officer said, Langdale used to go to a cell with two other prisoners for a cigarette and tea break, but it was locked. He shouted up, Get this door open downstairs. I said, There are five other cells open. You can have a cigarette in one of them. Langdale then swore at the officer, and another prison officer. Dean Adamson said, At the bottom of the stairs, he walked aggressively to me and punched me in the right eye. He got me in a headlock and tried to choke me. I was thinking he was going to kill me. Then other prison officers arrived and restrained Langdale. Langdell, who did not give evidence, is now serving his sentence at Franklin Prison in Durham. He denied causing actual bodily harm, but was found guilty by the jury. One other incidental point from this story. 27-year-old Rob Williams died at the same hotel in December 2013. A known sleepwalker, it appeared that he did this in the hotel, going outside in just a shirt and suit trousers before being knocked unconscious and spending hours freezing to death on a rain-soaked roof after falling 13 feet. He was only found the next afternoon following a works Christmas drinks party. After he died his girlfriend later discovered that she was pregnant with his child. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Clearly Langdale is just everyone's worst nightmare, and frankly, it's hard not to hope that he does spend the rest of his life in a cell. And as he sits there in the slammer today, how does he feel? Any regret or genuine remorse? Or is he not capable of these feelings? What do you think? And is there anything else Katie could have done to protect herself? It has to be a resounding no to that question. How could Katie have even begun to suspect the person she was going to meet was a dangerous monster? She certainly knew more about her dates than most before her first meeting. And there's only so much checking you can make on someone before a date, right? And after getting on so well in the bar, it was impossible for her to suspect that he would attack her just hours later, at the hotel. Should she have gone back to the hotel with him? Well, who are we to say either way? As I have said numerous times before on this podcast, think of all the potentially dangerous situations you've got yourself into and somehow survived. Just so many. Katie was, I think she was just unlucky, and it was a time when she'd everything in life going her way. Who knows what else she could have achieved in her life. We can just hope that her family and friends can still live some sort of fulfilling life, even with this terrible tragedy always on their minds. Those words are so easy to say and yet so difficult to live. I'm still haunted daily by my friend Nick Lynch, who was murdered in Brazil back in 1993, so I can't even begin to feel the pain that Katie's family must experience on a daily basis. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join us on Facebook to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support this podcast and help me to keep producing the show every week, please do head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Bonus episode 26 is coming this week, along with some potential news about an event in London later this month. that is all from me for today. Thank you again for listening. And hey, as I said at the start of the show, it's Christmas soon. So don't be that person in the garage at 5pm on Christmas Eve buying that dodgy CD. It's just not classy. Cheerio for now.